0: I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As we begin to emerge from this pandemic, in many ways we are entering a new and unknown world. There will be new obstacles and new opportunities. Much the same could be said about Joshua and the Israelites when they crossed the river and entered the new world of the promised land. What was God's answer for their uncertainty? A constant and compelling message we all need to hear. Be strong and courageous. Good morning, I'm Evan Burkett. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. Whether you are here in the auditorium with us or you are joining us online, we're glad you're present. I don't wanna go a moment further than, uh, than without Recognizing Cason Lytle Cason Lytle was in our campus ministry And he brought to us that third song That we sang that had just the words on it The Lord has a will And we have adopted that song in campus ministry I'll tell you, I looked high and low For music for us to read together Because we love that song And we want that to be one of the songs Maybe that we sing as a congregation So I thank Cason for bringing that to us And if he can find us the music That would be, come on man That would be even better <laughs> Anyway, this morning, let's turn together to Joshua chapter 2. We're in a brand new series that began last week, and it is called Strong and Courageous, Entering the New World. And today's story is one of secrets and spies and scandal. It's one of clandestine plots of whispers of collusion. It's the stuff that a good novel comes from. And while you're turning there, let me remind you of our DBS Bible study bookmarks. These are a great resource for us to look back at the text in our series and ask some good questions of ourselves and others. And it's a really simple, easy way to approach the Bible with other people, with your family, with your friends, with coworkers. In the announcements, you'll hear more about The sermon resources that are available on our YouTube channel and the discussion guide, we know that there are some of you doing that and classes that are even doing it together. And so we hope it's a blessing to you if you use that. Last week, Randy shared how prior to Joshua chapter 1, the Israelites had a fear, a fear of the unknown a fear of an unknown future. And that fear caused them to want to go back to Egypt, even though it was a place that they had been enslaved, even though it was a place they'd been mistreated. The uncharted tomorrow was scarier than going back. And so now here, after 40 years of rebellion, God is speaking to Joshua on the eve of going into the promised land. And he tells Joshua, you're going to need something. You're gonna need to be something. You're gonna need to have something to go into the land. Be strong and courageous. You're entering a new world, and we are too. That's why I love that this series is coming when it does. We are entering a new place, something that feels familiar, but still some things are different. Some things are not the same, and that is a good message for us today. It's a message that we need to hear. I believe God has another message for us today from Joshua chapter 2. Before we begin, let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning, and like the people of Israel, we need manna for today. We need our bread for today. We need today's word. And so, Father, we ask you to be with us, that our ears are ready to hear, that our eyes are open, our hearts are ready to listen. And, Father, when we see ourselves in these stories and consider what you're doing in the world and, Father, what you're doing in us. As much as we've ever needed you, we need you now, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before we dive completely into chapter 2, I do want to highlight one more thing that I think is relevant and has bearing on our study of chapter 2. And that is a little sort of parenthetical phrase from chapter 1. It comes in verse 5 where God is talking to Joshua and he says to Joshua, Joshua, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. As I was with Moses. Now, Joshua knows exactly what that means. Because he knows that it was Moses who met God in a burning bush. It was Moses who left his fields to be the representative before Pharaoh and demand that he let God's people go. It was Moses who went up on the mountain to receive the law and give it to the people. And it was Moses whose face was glowing after being in the presence of Almighty Jehovah. And it was Moses who got to climb the mountain and look over into the promised land before he died. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. But it wasn't a reminder to Joshua of who Moses was. It's a reminder to Joshua of who God is. Some quick background on Jericho, because that's where we're gonna be parked in chapter two today. Jericho is a pretty well uh, archeological dig site. Lots of countries have been there, Germany, Britain, the United States. It's currently in a closed part um, and unavailable because it's in a fully occupied Palestinian territory. But before that, we know quite a bit about this small place. We know that the city had an outer wall and an inner wall. We know that that outer wall was six feet thick. The inner wall was 12 feet thick. The walls were on average about 30 feet tall with apartments built into them, like we'll find out in chapter two in just a moment. Overall, this site occupied about eight acres. This building occupies about an acre and a half. So imagine something five times the size of this part of the campus. It was a good-sized, fortified city. Read with me in chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, I saw the schedule for preaching a while and I saw that this was going to be the last Sunday the college students were here and I was genuinely excited about being able to preach and then I saw the topic in the title. I thought, do they know that I exclusively teach and preach to college students? This, is, this could be dangerous but I promise you I'm going to keep it PG-13 today as we talk about Rahab and the spies. I admit that we're just in verse one and I have a lot of questions. I wanna notice a couple of things first. One is that Joshua has a preliminary plan. He knows that the first step is to send somebody in to scout it out and he's been there before. And I think he reckons that it is not a good idea to send 12 people this time. And so instead he sends two and he tells them very specifically, go scout out Jericho and only Jericho now some of us only remember Jericho from the VBS song you know the song Joshua fought the battle of Jericho of Jericho Jericho and you know what happens at the end the walls come tumbling down I hope that's stuck in your head like it's been in my head for the whole last week That doesn't happen until chapter six, about four chapters from now. But why only scout out Jericho if God has promised to his people the entire land? There's no way to know for sure. But maybe it's because it's easy to be overwhelmed thinking about all the battles on the horizon. Aren't you just sometimes overwhelmed by everything? By all the stuff? When we get focused on everything we have to do and conquer, it saps our energy, it takes our strength, and it's hard to think about the next step when your mind is racing to the next 26 steps. Are you feeling overwhelmed? It could be because you're focused far down the road and not on what's right in front of you. But it's also easy to look back and wonder, have I done enough? I remember when we sent our children to college and I had this nagging question, did I teach them enough? Did I prepare them well enough? Are they ready? I think a lot of us are experiencing a sense of that right now as we come out of the restrictions of the pandemic. I I don't know what it was like for you early on, but after the shock of everything shutting down, people began to talk about how to take advantage of the extra time or the the different ways that you spend time during the pandemic. And people were talking about learning a new language, picking up an instrument, learning to play it, getting in shape and working out, baking sourdough bread, working out because we ate all the sourdough bread. (laughs) It's just as easy, though, to look back with regret at what we didn't do as it is to look forward with dread because we are overwhelmed with what we have to do. Joshua was wise to tell them to focus just on this battle, the very next one. And so the spies go to Jericho, and it says they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And this is really where my questions lie. I've noticed in my studies for this passage that some scholars and people have tried to gloss over and sugarcoat this part of the narrative. And let me tell you, the authors of the New Testament do not do that. They do not shy away from the title and telling us who Rahab was. Neither the book of Hebrews nor James sanitized this part of her life. Rahab was a pagan Canaanite prostitute. And before this episode in Joshua, God had a lot to say about the Canaanites. He had a lot to say about their practices, and he had a lot to say about their sexual practices. And he warned the Israelites, do not defile yourselves by engaging sexually with the people of that land. Many times he told them that. In Leviticus 18 and 20, they're ward, warned about defying themselves sexually with the people who live there. In fact, God makes it clear that not only does that action defile you as the participant, that action will defile the land itself. And in verse 28 of chapter 18 of Leviticus, he says this, that is so egregious that the land will vomit you out like it spewed out the nations before you. Don't go there. The spies may have been at Rahab's house, but be careful not to assume that they're there for anything other than spying and gaining information. I think this passage requires us to ask some pretty hard questions about Rahab as well. It's easy for us to assume the worst about her. It's easy to think that she's in the position she's in just because she's made a series of bad choices in her life. Maybe she did. But maybe she didn't. If you know your American history, you know that some of the first settlers in America were indentured servants, not slaves. In fact, that didn't happen for almost 30 years before it was codified in our legal system in 1648. And so before that, it was very common, or at least not uncommon, for someone who wanted to seek passage to the new world and couldn't afford it to indenture themselves to the captain or someone else who was going who could pay for them. And then they contractually worked for that person until they paid off their debt. But it was a contract. There was a release date. If you met these requirements, you were done. That's also true historically, especially in the ancient world, for prostitution. Women could, in essence, indenture themselves to pay off financial debts, although it was much more common for the men in their life, the men in their family, to do that to them, to pay off their debts. Although it was tolerated, it was still an undignified, reviled choice. And the truth is, recently, some of us have found out through the news about the Atlanta massage parlor shootings that this still happens. That there are women in this world who are sex trafficked and forced to pay off debts offering their bodies to strangers. It's not right. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us three stories about being lost. He tells us about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And have you ever wondered how they were lost? The lost coin was lost by the actions of someone else. They didn't lose themselves. The sheep just wandered away, and the son willfully ran off. And isn't that how our lives unfold sometimes too? There are some people who find themselves in places they never imagined because they're suffering the consequences of behavior and choices of someone else. Don't get me wrong, that person is still lost That person still needs a savior. That person needs God to rescue them. But the lost parables teach us that God never gives up on us. And neither should we give up on people who find themselves someplace we don't like, someplace we don't agree with, someplace that we don't approve. If we make these assumptions here, it's easy to keep Rahab at arm's length. It's easy to just put her in a box of, oh, she made some bad choices. That's really her fault. Instead, as we jump into her world, we need to allow her to confront us in ours. So keep reading with me in verse 3. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. Somehow the king finds out that the spies are in Jericho. Now, whether he knows specifically that they're at Rahab's house or not, we don't know. It seems like he might. But he could just as likely reason that if there's some things going on in Jericho, there's a good chance Rahab may know about it. Let's go talk to her. Either way, Rahab finds herself in a very serious situation where she's going to be negotiating death on either side of her. Rahab is at a pivotal moment where she must make a crucial decision. What is she gonna do with the spies in her home at this very moment with the king's men at her doorstep? She's about to play a precarious game of survival. As a campus minister, I get to talk to college students a lot, and I love that part of my job. I love sharing life with them and finding out about their lives. And inevitably, on occasion, the conversation will turn to video games. Now, I'm not a video game player. It goes so fast. I'm not, my eye hand, I just, I don't like it. It's frustrating, it's annoying, but they like it. A lot of them really like it. And I'll ask them, well, tell me about how much time you're spending. And they'll give me some figure, usually in hours, sometimes days, I don't know, it's hours. But if there's a friend of theirs standing anywhere in proximity, they will almost always double whatever that answer was because they know it's usually more than you will admit to yourself. And there's this thing about game play. You see, games exist wherever people interact in a decision-making process. And there's something in game theory called the prisoner's dilemma. And the prisoner's dilemma says, if you imagine capturing two people who have broken the law and you separate them to interrogate them and you threaten them with severe consequences, and then you offer them a way to reduce their sentence, maybe to one, maybe to both, if they will only rat out the other person. And logic says each of them should take the deal to reduce their consequences. But what if they both do that? What if they secretly decide together that we're neither one going to do that? That's what's at stake for Rahab. In this very moment, she has to consider all of these options. And the logic of the prisoner's dilemma requires that the impending capture by the king, that Rahab and the spies turn on each other. That they betray one another in their own self-interest. And given their hostilities toward one another, that seems really likely. But maybe they'll risk cooperating with each other for a better future, for a safer future. It's risky business. Verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. If Rahab knows anything from her life, she knows how to be discreet. And so she says, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may may catch up with them. So she hides the spies for the men standing at her doorstep. And she lies about knowing their intentions. And then she sends them on a wild goose chase. Verse 6. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. The story gets really interesting now, right? The king's men are out searching for spies, so the immediate danger is somewhat alleviated. But now the spies are in the city with a locked gate. And not just in the city, they're in Rahab's house at night. Do you think they know what Rahab has set into motion? I wonder what they're going to decide. How will they respond? What's their next move going to be? Verse 8, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We Have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. The Lord your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. Rahab goes up to the roof, and she has a speech prepared. And I'm sure it is something that the spies had hoped to hear. The people in Jericho are terrified. They're scared to death. And Rahab tells them why. She says, we have heard. We know about your journey from Egypt. We know about the parting of the Red Sea and walking on dry land and your enemies being swallowed up and drowned. We heard what you did to those two kings who attacked you when all you did was asked to pass safely to someplace else. But you dispatched with them quickly and easily. And so now we don't have any desire to fight you. Our courage has failed us. And you know what's interesting is these stories they're referencing are 40 years old. But the people of Jericho knew them. And at least one person, Rahab, knows what's really going on because she says, for the Lord your God is God. It's an incredible declaration. In Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is reminded of who God is. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab reminds the spies of who God is. He's the deliverer. He's the promise keeper. He's the one who takes a man from Ur and makes him a great nation. He's the one who uses a man who can't speak well at all and makes him the representative before Pharaoh, demanding their release. He's the one who dries up the river so they can walk safely to the promised land and Rahab has only the tiniest little piece of their story just a little sliver and glimpse of who God is but it's enough for faith it's enough for her to trust it's enough for her to believe and that's the point God's character is the foundation for faith not our character It's not who I am or my character that brings faith. It's who God is and his nature and is the basis for faith. Let's be honest, if our faith was dependent on who we are and how we are, we'd all be in big trouble. Rahab is trusting that the stories she has heard about the God of Israel are true. And she's about to literally bet her life on it. But that also means that it's God's reputation that's at stake. It's not yours, it's not mine, it's God's. We don't act like that sometimes. We tend to spend a lot of time worrying about what other people think, justifying what we do, stressing about what people think about us, people whose opinions ultimately don't matter. I wish that it were true, that if you always did the right thing, that if you always said the right thing, that no one would ever disparage you or tell lies about you. That's just not the way things always are. One observer put it this way, we live in a world that can't differentiate between a rumor and your reputation. And I'm afraid that's getting worse, not better. So thankfully, it's not about our reputation, and our character, it's about God and his reputation and his character. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God's character and who he is is the foundation for faith. Back to verse 12. Rahab, speaking to the spies, says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Rahab makes the first move and she makes a big request. And she is gambling that the spies would rather cooperate and both reach a mutually beneficial place than to turn against her. And they answer, our lives for your lives, they assure her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she's let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. She helps them to escape and then plan to escape the people who are after them. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother and brothers and sisters and all your family into your house if any of them go outside your house into the street their blood is on their own heads we won't be responsible as for those who are in the house with you their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear." The spies realize that now that they're on the outside of the walls, now that they're safely down to the ground and they're looking up at Rahab's window, they have an opportunity to clarify and add a codicil and a caveat to their agreement. And they want to know, which one's your house? When we come back, we need to be sure. And that seems really reasonable. And they say, but we're only responsible for this house. If your family leaves, that's on them. But if something happens while you're in the house, that's on us. We'll live by that agreement. And Rahab says in verse 21, agreed. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. It's decided. All they're doing now is waiting for the invasion. It's a remarkable Story, And I think we see a couple of important truths in this story. God uses who he wants to use. God uses who he wants to use. He could have used anyone in Jericho that had any knowledge of the acts of God. But he chooses Rahab. And that seems to make the best sense to me as to why two Israelite men would enter the house of a pagan Canaanite prostitute. And on the eve of enacting his promise to his people, God uses a woman with a reputation and a past. A woman that the spies would have considered as an enemy. And yet God used this enemy, this woman, to show them who they are and who he is. Why? How? Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him God knows Rahab perhaps he's seen the qualities in her that are much like the qualities of the Proverbs 31 woman it's interesting to think about that Proverbs 31 was written by Solomon well after this episode so maybe it's the other way around maybe Proverbs is influenced by the story of Rahab but either way there are at least a few things and allusions of the things in the story of Rahab. Like the Proverbs woman, Rahab works with flax. The Proverbs 31 woman's family is clothed in scarlet. They offer protection and provision to those around them. They are wise and shrewd and clever. And Proverbs 31 ends with this characterization. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fading. By the way, legend, Jewish legend and tradition holds that Rahab was a beautiful woman. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fading but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The defining factor isn't Rahab's past it's her present and her present is an awareness of God's presence in her life. Her faith and God's faithfulness are the center of this story. But this is what God does again, and again, and again. He takes people with their messy lives and redeems them for his purposes. And it is often an unlikely someone. Char read for us 1 Corinthians chapter one, it says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If you're familiar with the people God chooses in the Bible, you know it is just as likely that he chooses an unlikely person as it is that he chooses someone you would expect. But when God chooses, He doesn't force you. He doesn't make you. You have to opt in. We see the end of Rahab's story in Hebrews chapter 11. All of the big events of the redemptive history are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Starting in verse 29, it says By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, wasn't killed with those who were disobedient or disbelieving. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. I can't wait to talk to the author of Hebrews and ask him, are you kidding me? You're kidding. I mean, I understand if you don't get to Jephthah, that's fine. But King David, the giant killer, the man after God's own heart, you make time to tell us about Rahab, but not David? I think that says a lot. I think it says that God doesn't look at people based on our standard of importance or significance. He's looking at your faith. as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James says your faith isn't living until you're doing something. God never calls us to do nothing. I think it's also significant that the New Testament authors continue to refer to Rahab as the prostitute. And it's significant because we all have a past. We have things we're not proud of. We have things that we wish weren't shared. But we aren't our past. Sometimes we have this idea that we've got to clean ourselves up before we can come to God in faith. That's not Rahab's story. She didn't find a new profession first. She didn't get her life straightened out and then come to God. She comes to God acting in faith, and that was enough for God to save her. We have a tendency to want to hide from God. Honestly, I think that's based in fear. And a lot of it is the fear that we have with people. Because our fear is that if somebody really knows me, if somebody knows the real me, they're going to leave. They're not going to stick around. They're going to abandon me. But God knows the real you. God knows you and He loves you. And He doesn't run away. He runs to you. And He fulfills your greatest longing, which is to be loved, to be fully loved, and fully known. This is our last point this morning. God's love isn't a reward for a changed life, it's the source of a changed life. When reading this story, you would expect these enemies to only do what's in their own best interest. Israel is on a war footing. The Canaanite king is ready to defend his kingdom, but we see this juxtaposition of God declaring that he has dedicated the Canaanites to destruction and the command that he gives them in Leviticus 1934, which says this, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Look back very quickly at verses 12 through 14. In those three verses, three times, twice by Rahab and once by the spies, they use the phrase in the NIV that is show kindness, or kindly and faithfully. Those words are translated from a Hebrew word, root of it anyway, hesed that's not an easy word to define in English but it generally means loving kindness a steadfast unfailing love and Rahab says to the spies I have dealt kindly with you hesed therefore you should deal kindly with me hesed and the implication from her is and as God has dwelt kindly with you you should treat kindly with me Extend that loving kindness to me. And the spies know that in doing so, they will fulfill the law to treat the foreigner as a Hebrew native, as one of their own. And that's not new to our ears. Jesus said we're to love our enemies. And he distilled the 600 commands and said, it really comes down to these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor. And on the night that he was betrayed, he said, I've got a new command for you love one another as I have loved you. People will know that you're with me when they see you love as I loved you. So maybe this morning, instead of asking, why did God choose Rahab? The better question is, why not Rahab? Why not the pagan Canaanite prostitute? And if the question is, why not Rahab? Then the question is, why not you? Why not me? Jesus said if we have faith even as small as a mustard seed it's enough to move mountains. Do you have enough faith like Rahab to trust that God is who he says he is? To trust that God has done what he said he did? That God is powerful enough to keep his promises and do what he says he will do? If you have that much faith you have enough faith to put your trust completely in him if you're ready this morning to submit your life to Christ to be baptized into him and start a brand new life that's what God wants for you you can begin a brand new life and if you'd like the prayers of this church family we've got a prayer page that you can go to you can submit those and make them visible and we can go and say we're praying for you you can keep them anonymous and we can still go and say we're praying for you if you're here this morning, you can come down to the front, and our shepherds would love to pray with you this morning. Let's stand and sing together. With a humble heart.